0: Hi, welcome to What's a Real Job Anyway. This is Jen, and today we have my friend Jonathan on. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Jen. (laughs) Introduce yourself, however you feel most comfortable.
1: (laughs) Oh, Thanks for having me. My name is Jonathan Weber. I am the winemaker at Linden Vineyards, located in Linden, Virginia. Uh, I've been at Linden now for 13 years, and I'm getting ready to approach my 20th harvest overall in Virginia.
0: Wow, that's a long time.
1: It is a long time. So I'm 39, so I started in the industry when I was 19, and I was very fortunate. This may be a long-winded story, but I'll start with I the love day. it. Alright. So I went to college for the wrong reason, I went to college for sports, and got injured, and I needed a job while well, I was out in the Midwest. I grew up in a household where food was the focus, my parents cooked, my grandmother was a big influence. But alcohol was not really a part of, I think, once or twice in my life growing up. We're going to have a French wine dinner theme, and my siblings and I, we got wine, but half the glass was filled with water and the other half with wine. So imagine not very good. (laughs) (laughs) And so when I was out west, needed a job, started working in catering, and kind of had a background in food and loved food. And I had a really good boss at the time and he made a comment about wine and I just laughed it off. Wine is this beverage of antiquity and he goes, oh kid, you got a lot to learn. And so he took me to a local wine shop and I just, I fell in love with it. I was just, I was fascinated by it and had a really good English teacher out there and she gave us free reign to write articles on whatever we wanted to. And I started writing articles about wine. After my first semester, she pulled me aside and she was like, Jonathan, maybe this is not the right place for you. She was like, there's got to be schools about wine or something. Why are you out here? And I was like, I started questioning. I'm like, why am I out here too? (laughs) That winter, I went home and my folks, they bought me a book on wine that I still reference. It's covered in duct tape 20 years later. And so... Where I grew up in Southwest Virginia is a very large operation in the state called Chateau Morset. I applied to Morset several times and never heard anything back and I was getting really frustrated and one day my folks were just like, Jonathan, just go up there. I dressed up real nice. I wore a tie, which I haven't worn in proudly in twenty plus years, and what did they have a restaurant there, and I walked into the restaurant <clears throat> and I luckily ran into the CEO of the company, Bob Bergen, and he said, You really want to work in the restaurant? And it was like no but i've applied several times to production and no one ever got back to me and he goes we're getting ready to start harvest you seem young and strong how's your back my back's fine can you lift 50 pounds my guess can you work long hours and i was like sure and he's like let's not focus on the restaurant let's walk over to production and sure enough he took me over there and i had the pleasure of meeting who's still a dear friend dan tolman and Dan was a winemaker. He worked with some of the pioneering women in California. He's an Oregon native, but he worked with Zelma Long at Simi. He worked with Paul Hobbs and mm-hmm. David Ramey when they were there. Mary Edwards, he's just a very practical guy. And when I showed up, the production crew, a bunch of hippies in coveralls and boots, and they see this guy in a jacket and a tie, and they're like, I don't know about this guy. He's got his, <laughs> he's got his own fancy clothes. And um, the next day, I showed up in ripped pants and tie-dye shirts, and, I was there for five years and Dan, his whole philosophy was, he had a lot of experience and <clears throat> he taught us all the practical day-to-day, the nuts and bolts of winemaking. If you knew that, you could go anywhere in the world and you get your foot in the door and you know how to do it. That was my first harvest in 04 and I fell in love with harvest. I'm very much a night person, in the morning I'm a bit grumpy, but so during harvest we had a swing shift at Morissette, So, basically. I'd come in at noon, one o'clock in the afternoon, and we stayed till the job was done. And sometimes that would be midnight, sometimes it'd be two in the morning. Those nights were rare, but it had to happen because we were constantly processing. And so just fell in love with the technical side of it. I started taking night classes at Surrey Community College, which has a working vineyard and winery on campus. And professors at the time were Gil Geese and Molly Kelly, great people. And the syllabus was geared toward Jim Law and Lyndon. I had been in the industry for about five years at that point. And I'd never heard of Lyndon. <laughs> about two years before coming up here, Jim was down in North Carolina giving a conference and he was talking about this apprenticeship program. I was totally intimidated by the apprenticeship program. I'm like, I have nowhere near the experience that he's requiring. And so I nadged him for about two, two and a half years, and it was always like kicking the can down the road. We don't have an opportunity, we don't have an opportunity. And was still at Morissette. I was also working at two other wineries in the area, Villa Appalachia and Amrine. Uh Villa Appalachia, Stephen has passed away, but Stephen Haskell and Suzanne Becker, they were the first ones who introduced me to the whole culture of wine and food. Um, Stephen was Canadian, Suzanne's Finnish. They would go to Luca, where they have a home in Italy, for, they shut down the facility here in Virginia and leave for about three or four months. And their whole thing was worked really hard, but then at lunch we would take like a two hour break. And it was very much they embraced the Italian mm-hmm. European mentality. And Stephen was a phenomenal cook, these wonderful meals, very simple and to the point. And then Suzanne would always disappear and show back up with fresh espresso and it was like time to get back to work <laughs> and <laughs> so I learned they introduced me to the other side of wine wine appreciation and food and I had the practical side from Morissette and Amrine again the practical side and so with that uh, still at Surrey taking night classes and then basically the class took an annual field trip up to Linden from Surrey and that's Basically, the second time I met Jim, and was still nagging about the apprenticeship program. So in 2010, he gave me a shot at it. It was a two-year program. You overlapped one year with the previous apprentice. Rucker DeVinck in R.D.V., was an apprentice. Joshua Grainer, his right-hand man, was also an apprentice of Jim's. Joshua was there a couple years before I was. Then Dominic Furezi, who now has Crimson Lane Vineyards in Linden, he was the apprentice that him and I overlapped. Oh, nice! I didn't know that. Jim's whole philosophy with the apprenticeship program was he was getting very frustrated with the industry. Jim is a prolific writer, and that's his influence on the industry. And the whole apprenticeship program was designed to bring people in, mold them, and then send them out and to influence to do what they want to do, but influence the industry as a whole. And I was just I was fascinated by it. So in 2010, I was the last apprentice of Lyndon. Then we transitioned, if you're familiar with apprenticeship programs, they go from apprentice to journeyman to Matt, with the No, it I actually
0: don't oh, know uh, that... Actually, can we pause there yeah, and talk about sure. the apprentice journey? Because I've always oh. been super pro apprenticeships in general, but not really how they function. Like I'm, I'm familiar with the concept of being an apprentice, yeah. but not like the journey of how you progress in that path.
1: Sure. So traditionally apprenticeship program was someone maybe didn't have any experience, had a desire to learn, or was very interested in said craft. And they would apprentice under someone who has a lot of experience, typically a master. I would consider Jim a master in his craft for sure. And the next level is what they call a journeyman. Apprenticeship programs typically would have a a time frame. And so for the one at Linden, it was two years. Journeyman, there was no set time, but the idea was someone who already had experience. And so they would come on and they can stay as long as they want. An apprenticeship program, you go through it, you learn a lot, but then you may decide, hey, this is not for me. A journeyman, you're already at that point. This is for me. I want to pursue this, but I need to fine tune things. Yeah. When we ended the apprenticeship program, we started the journeyman series. Aaron was the only journeyman that we had, but he decided after a couple of years that he didn't want to do that. We decided, let's just end the journeyman program And at that point, Jim asked me, and he said, Jonathan, i want to sit you down. We're gonna have a talk about your future here at Linden because I knew the apprenticeship program had ended. It was time for me to move on and I didn't really have a plan. It was like, what am I gonna do? I don't have the capital to start my own project, but, and I really don't wanna work for anyone else because what I've learned, people are probably gonna dismiss it and say, we can't do that. Jim sat me down and he said, Jonathan, I have two questions for you. A, do you wanna stay here? And B, do you wanna go to Burgundy, France? As you can imagine, yes and yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really passionate about whites in particular, and so Burgundy just, it just made a lot of sense. I had the pleasure of meeting Mark Chen, who is a former Extension guy in Pennsylvania, and then Jeff Newton, who started and owned and operated Vineyard Coastal Care in the Santa Barbara area of California. Two Goliaths in their field when it comes to just the knowledge they have forgotten more than I will ever learn. <laughs> and the four of us went to Burgundy for several days, knocking on the doors of these prestigious estates. You can look at a book on Burgundy all day long and it will not put it into perspective till you're there. When you're there, there are literally vines everywhere. <laughs> and the only thing that's separating these blocks are roads. <laughs> We brought Hardscrabble Chardonnay with us and to give a little bit of background, hard we have three single vineyards, Boiseau, which is in Front Royal. It's truly in the Shenandoah Valley. It's our driest site, it's our warmest site, faces west, lowest in elevation. Richard Boiseau is the owner operator and he started that opera he started it in two thousand one and then We have Avenius Vineyard, which is on the same ridge as Hardscrabble. It's our coolest site, around 1,500 feet in elevation, and faces north-northeast on very different soils from Hardscrabble. And then the Hardscrabble site is the original planting that Jim and his family planted in 85, and the first vintage was 87. And so we took Hardscrabble Chardonnay to Burgundy with us, and we wanted critical feedback. And producers, they gave us great feedback every time we tasted they would talk about elevage and like raising a child at a certain point you gotta let them go you gotta let them run you can't hover over them you can't helicopter them to death <laughs> and so they taught we started talking about fermentation temperatures and the global perspective and this is a gross generalization so please I apologize there don't want a lot of people under the bus but the idea is you ferment whites very cool on the cool side because you want to lock in those aromatics how cool 55, 60, 62 degrees, that's on the cool side. It's a range, but you're locking in those aromatics. And for me, those wines bother me, (laughs) just aromatically. It's all about aromatics, they leap out of the glass, but there's no texture, there's no mouthfeel. Where's the rest of the wine, and how's this wine gonna age? And that style of wine is, it's not meant to be age-worthy, it's meant to be consumed young, most wine is. Right. And we started after 13, 13 ended up being a phenomenal vintage for us. We had dry conditions. Blue skies and very cool nights, and it was just week after week. And so when we came back from Burgundy, this we went in late July, early August. And so when we came back, we decided let's implement what we learned. And so we started pushing fermentation temperatures. And it was, we had the luxury of when to pick. We could pick in a couple of days. We could pick in a couple of weeks. There was just there was no pressure. And so we just kept tasting the grapes, and the quality of the acid is so important the picking decisions and it was just like, we have something very special. <laughs> and, and that was the year we started pushing fermentation temperatures. So we went in the opposite direction. We would get into the 70s or even higher. Uh, I think sometimes I make Jim a little nervous. <laughs> <laughs> but what we found is that the wines gained more texture and in theory should help with the longevity of the wines, especially when you had that high quality acid. We're sort of right on the threshold for Chardonnay for us. Higher elevation site would be nice, any lower and further south it would just be too warm Mm -hmm. for our style of chardonnay we love acidity sure and it's more of a burgundian style the burgundians typically will put chardonnay through malolactic fermentation Mm -hmm. we don't because we want to retain that acid the acids can be a little jangly a little hard in their youth but you give them time and they come around i brought the 17 avenia chardonnay which was a very similar vintage to 13 beautiful city maybe a little riper a little warmer but very similar 17 in a way similar to the way this vintage is shaping up. It was warm but sunny, blue skies and cool nights. So, if we don't get any rain, this vintage could give the 17 a run for its money. Cool, yeah.
0: Cool, let's try it. All right. I know this is the Chardonnay, <laughs> but one of the first wines that I was introduced to Linden by was the Avenace uh, Sauvignon Blanc. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Over by the folks at Rutler's Hour. Nice, I think. Nice,
1: Bill yeah. Jensen, I'm a big fan of Bill. He's a good friend, and he's just—I every time I'm around that like, guy, I, I learn so much about wine. And he's always like, you got to try this you got to try this
0: <laughs>
1: so if you go to revelers hour plan on being there for a couple hours
0: <laughs> yeah practice moderation yes moderation is key to being there for a long time <laughs> wait so actually let's talk about this wine a little bit so one of the people that i originally was like i really want to talk to shari <laughs> but i knew that shari would never do this i don't know i don't know but maybe I can't speak for shari but <laughs> yeah probably not but yeah probably not <laughs> Probably not. So, this is a Chardonnay from Avinius. Yes. Shari Avinius, one of my favorite wine growers. Hi, Shari.
1: Hi, Shari. <laughs> so, uh 96, 97, these vines were planted. It's of the three vineyard, single vineyards, and sorry, Jim, it's my favorite site because I love acidity and I'm more passionate about whites than reds and Shari's acidity consistently just now with climate change we'll see yeah. but it's faces north, northeast there's a lot of slate there's there's some pockets where the soil can be very shallow but those vines, Shari now has some of the oldest vines she has the oldest Cabernet Sauvignon of all three vineyards because Jim, the original plantings in 87 are gone now so our oldest gravel Cabernet is 02 predates that, and so it's a, a, a feather in her cap. For me, Venus is, I'll quote Raj Parr when talking about white burgundy, a producer we visited in Burgundy was Jean-Marc Rouleau, and he made the comment that Chardonnays could be like water. And it wasn't a sense of being dilute, it was a sense of purity. Mm. And I always loved that, and I find the same in Venus Chardonnay in particular. There's just, there's no smoke and mirrors, there's no makeup, it's just, it is what it is, and it just, her whites, they age, her reds age, it's just, it's, I'm very pleased with the quality of those grapes. Yeah. And Jaurie is a meticulous grower. This wine's still wound up for me. Yeah. There's a lot of concentration. It needs time, and I honestly, this 10 years, 12 years, I think this wine's going to be drinking beautifully. It's still in a primary stage for me right now but eventually we'll get into secondary and tertiary, but we're not there yet. And the personality of the grower certainly comes through in our wines. This wine is still nervous and wound up and a late bloomer. And as Shari would say, it spot
0: on. <laughs> That's why I wanna to talk to her. I love yeah. Shari. Yeah. Hi, Shari. Um, okay, cool. One of the things I love about wine, especially people who work on the production side of things, is this encyclopedic knowledge of time that has passed. a in, in knowledge about vintages, for example. Oh. So for me, as someone who is sometimes very relaxed about time that passes, wine is a way to put time into context for me. Sure. It also puts, like, geography into context for me. These things that, like, really didn't have a tangible place in my brain, it adds that kind of structure for me. And what I love about talking with you sometimes is where we're like, 2017 was X, Y, and Z, or 2014. And I know that if you're newer to wine, the talk about vintages may be a little confusing. But I think there are certain areas where the seasons just vary more. I think Virginia sure. is one of those places where <laughs> no two years are alike.
1: I'm, no, you took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> yes, and Jim is a very good note taker, me not so much, but we keep detailed, Jim keeps detailed notes and sharing. And like this past vintage, it, we had a, the spring was super cool. And it was a joy to be around even joshua over at rdv and i were coming like we love working when it's cool <laughs> especially because east coast in the summer
0: horrendous sti- yeah
1: <laughs> it's, it's terrible you're sweating first thing in the morning and you sweat basically all day and it can be unbearable yes this past spring was glorious and 13 years of being being here i've never experienced that kind of spring
0: mm. so look at that it's
1: been very dry yeah Um, it was very cool early on it's been very dry we had about a little over two two and a quarter inches uh, a couple weeks ago and we needed it and now it's dry again but this could all shift may june that sort of sets the quantity of the vintage august september will set the tone for the quality and but no two years are ever the same we had 2010 drought conditions 13 very cool and sunny 14 warm and cloudy (laughs) classic year 16 hot and dry and early but I was going to that was a segue into answering your question I don't know if I did
0: what is it like working in a field that is so dependent on the year to year
1: what's it like farming is not for the faint of heart that's for sure there's been some heartbreak for sure but that's how oh, that's just life. <laughs> None of us are getting out of it alive, so you might as well enjoy it. Woof. <laughs> My old boss Dan at Moore said during harvest that no weddings, no babies, no funerals during harvest. And that can offend a lot of people. I get that, but I love that. It was just like put your life on pause because you're dealing with nature and you're at the mercy of the vintage. Mm-hmm. In the course of a lifetime of someone who's doing this, you may have 40 vintages. Plus, I would hope. Sure. I'm hoping I got I mean, I,
0: Lyndon's at a 40th <laughs> anniversary, so I don't yeah, know what you're talking yeah, about.
1: I'm hoping Jim and Shari have a, a good 20 more, and it's a hell of a team. I enjoy working. I love them both, and Richard, and I love working with all three of them. And I'm not going anywhere. I'm not planning on going anywhere. <laughs> and But those, and I hope I have a good 40 more vintages, and <laughs> we'll see. But you got to be on every year and as Jim has said in the course of a year we make about a thousand decisions and they all don't have to be great decisions you just can't make a bad one and a lot of times the best thing is to do nothing at all that will be our decision it's like we don't have enough information let's just hold off and of say 40 vintages with climate change we'll see i'm not sure half of them are average i'd say another quarter are Problematic. (laughs) An eighth, good. And that last eighth, great. And my first vintage Linden was 2010. What I know now, what we know now, we would have approached things differently. Those are drought conditions, and we made some big, massive, kind of West Coast and style wines. Some people like those wines. We're not crazy about them. We've tasted those wines. And oh, we should have done things differently. But you don't know Mm because you didn't have that experience. But with every year being different in Virginia, we now have these tools. And I think, and something we haven't talked about, I think style is probably our most versatile tool. And I think it's, a, it's something that the East Coast needs to focus on in general, is that it gives us that flexibility. We're not constrained by tradition, like you have to do it this way every year. Application and usage of style, I think, are very important. And it changes on the vintage. And you got to be able to adapt. Some years, that's why we spend so much time tasting wines from around the world, because some certain vintage, and like, oh, this reminds me of Cru Beaujolais, or this past vintage, the way it was shaping up. Jim and I were like Northern Rhone, and so we focused on tasting a bunch of Northern Rhone's prior to the Red Harvest. Mm-hmm. So it just gave us ideas to work
0: with. Cool. For me personally, sometimes I'm so focused on making the best possible decision, but sometimes it's better to have that approach of just make a decision, just make sure you're not fucking up. (laughs) Just like, just like you gotta move on and sometimes decisions are time bound and you need to make the best possible decision within the time that you're given and the information that you have and make sure that you're ready to make that decision. And you can't stress about like, maybe don't
1: second guess yourself. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. And I think that takes experience. That takes a certain kind of confidence that comes with little experience. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) You just need to have that confidence and experience (laughs) and also just that grace with yourself that you're like, all right, maybe looking back, you would have made a different decision, Sure. but you can't obsess over that. You just have to move on. Like you did the best. And you didn't mess up. Great. You made the second best choice. Great. Excellent. Yes. Good job. Yeah.
1: And a lot of times when you make and what I find just to expand on that is that you make the decision, stick with it. Sure. Because if then you start making multiple decisions and you sort of mess up what your initial focus, then it's like, well, what influenced it? Like for us, it's like we just make a decision, stick with it, and then after the vintage, we can look back and say, was that a good decision or a bad decision? But if we make multiple decisions regarding say one aspect and we like the results or don't like the results so it's like well hell what did it <laughs> keep it simple
0: i think that's interesting too about making wine where it's a creative endeavor and a science project going back to what elementary school science fair you're testing one variable at a time and if you're trying to test too many variables you're, you just don't know what you ended up with yeah, you right get lost yeah absolutely what are some questions you always ask people that you respect in this field i, I like
1: to walk the vineyards and you can see how what their approach why they did what they did like what are they hoping to achieve
0: yeah yeah i think that's a good point too right where i think both you and jim have talked about it's often not about the it's not really about the what did you do but it's the why did you do it because no two situations are the same Right? So, again, it's about learning that decision-making process. Like, why did you choose to do that in that particular moment, yeah. and what did you think about it?
1: Yeah, and did you think it was a good decision? Would you have done something differently?
0: Which is, I think, also when I've heard different, again, going to, back to winemaking, I feel is very unique in that aspect of you get one shot. You work really hard, and you one shot every year. one shot. Yeah, one shot. <laughs> Do not make. I'm not gonna sing this song. But anyway, you get one. <laughs> you get one shot. Get one shot. You get one shot every year. You better not mess up. But you also may, and it's about learning from it. And I think that's also why I think learning from one another is really important because that's a way to be able to learn. You can't speed up the vintage you can't speed up how many you can't speed up how you work but you can learn from other people and learning those lessons of why people did what they did is a way to get that knowledge without necessarily working it yourself
1: no you work when i worked at morissette with dan decades of experience and that sort of that gave me a huge advantage over others it was just like i took what he taught me and it was like he went to Davis and it's, all right, do I need to go to Davis? Do I need to do all these things where I can just learn from this guy for five years? And Great. I've just, I've gained. I've stood on, I've been lucky. I've stood on the shoulder of giants. And that propels you much faster than going to school. <laughs>
0: <laughs> just in some fields, learning from people who have done it before is so important.
1: Yes, a mentor of mine who passed away uh, in May last year was Sean Thackeray, based in California. Wait, a little bit. You,
0: you've met Sean Thackeray?
1: Yep. Really neat guy. read an article about him met over a decade ago and and visited him in 2008 for the first time. And Sean has a way of staying off the radar. He doesn't mm-hmm. want to be found.
0: Reminds um, me of someone I know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, the wine industry has a way of attracting introverts. Sure. <laughs> and so went out there with a friend and drove up he's about an hour north of San Francisco. And I knew... The hamlet of Bellinas. i'm like i got to get there mm-hmm. you know the general area but even the locals take down the road signs they don't want people to find this place and sure. show up there and we had a wonderful meal and the small at the restaurant i asked i really want to meet sean thackeray and his comment was well, so do you and everybody else like <laughs> i'm like no man like i've emailed him and i didn't have a cell phone at the sure. time he knows i'm not here still don't have a
0: cell phone yeah I, <laughs> <laughs>
1: I do have one, it's limited use, but but I'm here, we're here for the night, I'm like, I gotta find this guy, he's expecting me, can you just point me just in the general direction? Yeah, his house is like up over there in the hill, and I'm like, great, that's wonderful, I'm not gonna find this place, but if you folks don't know about Sean Thackeray, he was a fascinating individual, he claimed to have the world's largest collection of ancient winemaking texts, I believe he taught himself either six or seven different languages to interpret these texts, fascinating character he had an outdoor winery everything was outside he was basically overlooking the Pacific so very cool my friend Cicely and I were driving around and we we're looking for this place and I had shown her a picture of him and nothing we're driving around like we're not gonna find this guy and she looked in the side view mirror and she was like that's him that's him right there <laughs> And so we stopped get out and like go running over to him and he's like getting ready to get into his truck And this was like late morning and he turned around and he had this shit-eating grin on his face and his teeth were stained purple. And he's like, yeah, Jonathan, I knew you were coming out here, just we've lost contact. And he's like, can you come back tomorrow? I was like, yes, I'll be back tomorrow. So we went back to San Francisco, I drove the car back up the next day, get there, and they were pressing off some beautiful Syrah. were hanging out and I got to meet his assistants and it looked like a junkyard there was stuff everywhere barrels were outside tarps on stuff mattresses box springs on top of open top fermenters because he didn't have lids and it was just like this is bizarre but the wine spoke for themselves and so they're processing and they didn't know me from Adam they're like who is this joker like does he have any experience or whatnot and Something had happened, they had walked away from the press, and I'm like in awe. And I'm like standing by this press, and something wasn't right. And all of a sudden, they didn't put a receptacle under sure. the press. And so, this juice is just, oh no. or wine, it was finished wine at this point, it was just going on the ground. And I like reacted and put stuff underneath. And they came back around, and they're like, Oh, we totally forgot about that. Dude, you like knew what to do. That's great. And so, they said, this is worth several bottles of wine for sure. So, I ended up spending the afternoon with them mm-hmm. and just hanging out with Sean Thackeray and getting more of an idea of, of his philosophy, which is very different from Lyndon. and... How so? Uh, well, uh, Lyndon, we talk about terroir. Thackeray totally dismissed terroir. And he's like, it doesn't exist. As Jim said many years ago, people talk about what they have. They don't talk about what they don't have. Mm. And Sean Thackeray didn't own any vineyards. But he was always buying grapes and then he was getting bought out and then he'd lose his source. But he had access to some really old vines. At Linden, all the grapes from all three sites come to us. We're very much in the vineyard, and that's what we focus on. Our winemaking is very simple. Trust me, there's a lot of things you can add to wine, and you can be a wine chemist if you want. We choose not to be. We focus on basically grapes, yeast, sulfur, and oak. Um, Thackeray, his stance was that, yeah, sure, there are vineyard characteristics and influence. That's part of dealing with Mother Nature, but you need a human being to interpret it and so his whole thing was that terroir has gotten so far off the charts warped that the human element is not factored in and it should be that is a part of terroir so it's just a slight difference in philosophy but a neat guy nonetheless
0: (laughs) i think a common theme in some of the stories that you've told about your path Mm -hmm. has been about just showing up
1: (laughs) (laughs) yes i mean i'll reference sean thackeray again because he made a comment to me years ago he says you're either present or you're not. Yeah. And life's going to go on without you. I've been very fortunate, I guess, good timing here and there, and being also
0: being a, a white man, just putting that out there.
1: <laughs> I'm very much well aware of that. I'm very lucky. Yeah. Good timing on a lot of, on a lot of things, and I met some incredible people that took me under their wing, and I'm still under their wing, and we've become good friends over the decades, and that opportunity I know is not available to any and all, for sure, and. But, so I'm just going to put a little soundbite out there. Well, we're, uh, we are looking for a harvest intern this year. And it would be nice if someone had experience. But, you know, we're good teachers as well.
0: I can attest to that.
1: <laughs> but if you just, if you like to work, it's a lot of grunt work. As Richard Boisot and I, were always tease each other during harvest. It's a lot of just picking things up and putting things down. <laughs> so You're but, not wrong. <laughs> but there's such gratification in it in the end result but it's that connection it's that human connection you're out there and grapes are going to do what they want whether you're there or not and you need to be there to make all the picking decisions getting the grapes in time and it's just a lot of hard work it's a lot of hard work but it's well worth it
0: yeah i do love that you and jim and shari have all been so welcoming in the kind of spirit of expanding the wine world i think sometimes there are topics, but I think especially crafts that are very difficult to learn unless someone teaches you. Sure, mm-hmm. you can read books and you can take classes, but it, you really just have to do it yourself to understand what happens. And I think wine making is one of them. And I've been so grateful for everything that I've learned. And it's been very exciting to see a lot more people opening their arms and being like, Hey, we're here and being receptive to people because it's also interesting. That's often also the advice I've gotten. People would just say, just show up. And there are some very embarrassing stories of how that's played out, which I'm not going to (laughs) share. Come on. (laughs) No, thank you. Sometimes just showing up can be really embarrassing when it's not well received. Anywho, but along with that theme, I think there is also that Easter egg hunt. It, like, it sounded like some kind of mythical quest that you were on where you just had to go and seek people out.
1: Yeah. When I was young in the industry, I was graciously devouring anything I could get my hands on about mm-hmm. wine. And I had some great teachers and I just, I couldn't get enough of it. And in my youth, I was adamant. There was no gray area. It was black and white for me where I was just like, I had an answer for everything. <laughs> and 20 years later, if someone asks me a question, I'll shrug my shoulders I'm like, well, it could be this, it could be that, and that's what I love about the industry, because a quote I, I came across many years ago said, if you put 12 winemakers in the same room, you'll get 13 different wines. No one's right, no one's wrong, but we don't necessarily agree. <laughs> Another thing I love about the industry is that if they're in it for the right reasons, their experience or their take on things, it's not proprietary. It's very much an open door policy because we all, we basically respect the sanctity of sight and wine wine should be different. Everyone has a different expression. You gotta be accepting of that. And there's no hard and fast cut rules. It's gotta be this way. It could be, or it could be that way.
0: So I wanted to revisit the idea of, you've been at Linden for 13 years. Mm -hmm. I think, and you've also talked about how in a person's lifetime, because harvest only comes once a year, there are only so many harvests that you can work. Yeah. I mean, I also think that there are other, there's another approach to people who are learning to make wine where they chase harvests for a period of time, where they yeah. try to work to hemispheres for a period of time and you try can, to do that. gain as much of experience as possible. But I also love what you've done where there, I think there's merit to both. Where you try to work in as many different places as possible to understand how winemaking can look different. How wine growing and winemaking can look different in different places. But I also think it's a very different exercise to stay in one place and be like, it's going to be different every year. There are certain places because it's Mediterranean. You're easy. blessed. It's very easy. It's your vet, blessed of the great vintage every single year. More power to you. Maybe it's not as interesting. Maybe it is. Yeah. let me know um, <laughs> but but i also think that it's a different type of thought experiment in a way to stay in one place and look at it, how it changes over the years and i think there's that but also there's climate change it's not staying the same it's not a constant right? yeah so what do you think about that
1: oh wow loaded questions yeah. i'm just <laughs> here with all the loaded questions <laughs> I've always loved the idea of following the harvest around the world. And one of these days, maybe if I get my act together, I'll do it. But I keep coming back to Linden. I could do a harvest in the Southern Hemisphere. But harvest in the Southern Hemisphere, then I'm missing out on pruning. Mm. And that's pruning is our most skilled job in the vineyard, year in and year out. It was one of the things where Jim hovered. Because <laughs> it was one of the first things I learned, because that's when I showed up. But it was like, you got to learn this skill, but it's like, you ask questions before you cut and why this is fine now i still have questions about pruning but we can each take a row and kind of go at our own pace mm-hmm. jim sometimes he'll be working behind me and then he's like well, jonathan why would you prune it like that and i better have an answer <laughs> and a good answer and then i said well, i was doing this and this okay cool and i move on to the next but we're doing it year after year after year you're dealing with the same blocks the same vineyards you're factoring in the previous vintage and you can't get that if you're Bounce around to other facilities, and so that makes things very consistent. Like the guys that help us out in the vineyard, Lloyd, geez, Lloyd's been with us since the early 90s, and there's not much of a turnover rate at Linden. <laughs> Production's pretty set, and that's another part that's my hat goes off to Jim. Uh, business model wise, it's, uh, it makes things consistent, and therefore we can make better wines every year going forward. And if you have a high turnover rate in the vineyard, People don't know what they're doing and it's like they're making mistakes and it's, then you're going back to square one, but we're leaps and bounds ahead of others in that regard. Regarding climate change, after the 2018 vintage, Jim and I decided we need to think outside the box. 2018 was a wet growing season and a wet harvest. We just didn't have the concentration to do any single vineyard, so all three sites were blended. What happens day. when you get rain
0: right before harvest?
1: Two things. The vines never really shut down. So. You want to see the end of growing and the beginning of ripening, that's veraison, color change. The vines are growing during the growing season, they have access to all the goodies and that's fine. But at veraison you want to see the shoot tips basically stop and the energy, the vines energy starts putting its energy into ripening the grapes. So you have concentration, flavors, we didn't get that in 2018, the vines were still growing. But then you start getting into harvest and the vines are taking up a lot of water. That water's gotta go somewhere and it's going into those berries and berries will expand and contract, depending on the vintage. They expand too much, they split. <laughs> and if they split, they basically expose all their goodies inside and everything in the world loves sugar. <laughs> so animals, insects, you name it, disease, rot, it gets in Especially
0: there. in a already humid yeah, no, climate yeah, like Virginia exactly.
1: yeah um, not saying all the blocks did that and but we just we basically had to cut our losses and say we got to we're not doing single vineyards this year and so we blended all three sites for the 18 village Chardonnay which Dave McIntyre recently in the Washington Post wrote a wonderful review of it it's basically our best grapes from all three sites went into this one wine and it's a beauty and it's just, what more does one want from Chardonnay? It has beautiful yeah. acidity. And that's because of the season, is that maybe it doesn't have the concentration, but it had acidity. And it's had some herbal has some herbal notes to it. And it's an approachable wine. I won't be as long-lived as a single vineyard, for sure. But I think it's in a drink, great drinking window now. We decided to do no reds in 2018. Everything went into rosé. And it's because with reds, whites you can get away with things if things are still growing higher acidity, more er herbal notes with reds, it's a disaster (laughs) reds will, it's again a generalization but if reds have access to water and all the goodies they're going to continue growing and they'll produce something called methoxypyrazines, the same compound you find in bell peppers we want our red wine to taste of fruit and not veggies (laughs) Mm. those herbal qualities are not necessarily a bad thing for rosé. So I think we made a good decision and said no reds. And we produced a quaffable, enjoyable rosé. All right, so after talking about the 2018 vintage, Jim and I decided to think outside the box. And that's when we put in the experiment. We said we need to focus on other varieties. And we focused on all three sites, the Bordeaux varieties for the reds, Chardonnay on all three sites, Sauvignon Blanc on two. We have some Semillon on hardscrabble. The original planting of Vidal Blanc, which is French American hybrid, and we have Petit Mansing on hard gravel. And Richard Boisseau of the Three Sides, he's the only one that has Viognier. We decided we need to try some different varieties, and so we got about 20 different varieties in the experimental block, and they're all over the place Spanish varieties, Italian varieties, French varieties, Hungarian varieties.
0: <laughs> some you can't pronounce.
1: Some you can't pronounce. And the, our criteria was late ripening, thick skins. Going back to my early start at Villa Appalachia, Stephen Suzanne introduced me to the Italian way of life, but also Italian wines. They were talking about climate change 20 years ago. And so we need to focus on these varieties. They had planted multiple Channel roots, so. Malvasia Bianca, which I would recommend, that does rot. Alianico, which holds up beautifully. Primitivo, big cluster tight skins, Mm, depends on the vintage. Luca at Barbersville Fiano, he recommended it to us, and Fiano was doing beautifully. This past vintage, we had a fair amount of rain at the end of harvest. After we had picked all the reds, we walked through the experimental vineyard, and the Fiano was bulletproof, no rot, still had acidity. I was like, like, I don't even think this is ready yet. (laughs) And so we need to get into mid-September mid-October for ripening times because it's to it's cooler at night to retain that acid that we want and you're just ripen under ideal conditions. And I have a lot of Italian varieties in the experimental block. French varieties that we have, we have some Aligote, which we just love Aligote, I don't know if it's going to work, but because it ripens slightly before Chardonnay and we're at the threshold for Chardonnay. We have some Ovedra. What I've read, they say it's very late ripening, like very late Virginia, it might even be too late. (laughs) But we'll see. We have Ashlova, uh, which is, I think that's the pronunciation. Jim's always wanted to grow it because it, the English translation is Linden leaf. We have some Saperavi, Gruneweltliner, which I would not recommend. Very big cluster and it rots, but we'll give it a fair shake. Joshua Greiner, RDV recommended, Verbola Gialla. We'll see how that does. We planted some Scopatino and the all three Policella varieties. So Corvina, Veronese, Molinar, Rondonella. I have experience growing those, and the Corvina. Steven Villa loved it because he swore it was bird-proof. <laughs> what else? We recently planted some Albariño, I know it's very popular in Virginia, we'll give it a fair shake and see. Some Nebbiolo.
0: Yeah. That sounds cool. Mencia. So. I'm excited to see how that turns out.
1: Yes. So no plans to make wine just yet, we're just making viticultural observations like do they survive our winters, what's the cluster architecture like. Is it highly susceptible to mildews? Does it rot? Is it late ripening thick skins? And then if it makes it to the next stage, then we'll plant on a larger scale and start making mine from it. This is like a 10-year project.
0: (laughs) Cool. It's supposed to be exciting to be like, I've been here for 13 years and I'm working on this project that's going to go on for another 10 years. (laughs) I love it because i feel like again there's a pressure to be like all right you've done this job for two years find the next thing you need to find the next thing to grow and that's not necessarily always the case
1: no not for me i love that no two years are ever the same
0: what is it like uh, working with the same group of people for that length of time
1: oh it's jim and char i consider family it's become a family for me we're good friends we know each other quite well maybe a little too well <laughs> Jim, Shari, and I see each other daily. <laughs> Shari might get sick of Jim and I, and there might be a couple of days during the week where we don't see her or, <laughs> or on the weekend. But Jim and I basically see each other daily, and we're always reprioritizing, and we have our morning meetings, and it's what's on the agenda for today. We need to shift efforts. Rain is coming. It's dry. This piece of equipment is down. We wear many hats, and you have to be flexible. But Jim is forever the student. He's still learning. He's still inquisitive and he's never content. That's one of the reasons I love him. He has that drive.
0: That's one of the things I love about Jim. Hi, Jim. When I think this second time I met Jim, it was at a wine event and I overheard him asking all these very detailed questions to a French winemaker. That to me was one of the moments where I was like, I really want to have the opportunity to learn from this person who at this stage in their career, in their life, still in that position where they're so inquisitive, because I think that indicates a level of curiosity, but also a sense of humility Mm -hmm. of, I don't have all the answers. And those are the types of people that I personally really loved engaging with.
1: Agreed. For me, it's the best team I've ever worked with or for, and it'll be a sad day when that ends. Hopefully it won't end for many years. We're not going anywhere, but Jim and Sherry are getting older.
0: Well, that's and a, a fat, downturn. I
1: know, but it's just a fact of life. It's been the great honor of my life being at Linden. We're all on the same page, and none of us are content, and we're very proud of what we do. And it comes through in a bottle.
0: How did you know this job was for you? You talked about how you were very passionate about wine and that kind of sparked something in you. Mm -hmm. But there's something different about reading about doing something and then actually doing it and being like, yes, this, the actual mechanics of the job. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's something different about discovering a topic and being like, yes, I'm very interested in it. And then finding your niche within it and being like, yes, this actual task that I'm doing, fits with me. It makes me happy. Mm. Is there a moment like that where you're like, yes, I'm doing what, I'm doing something that I know that I can be good at.
1: Wow. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that question.
0: That's well. the objective. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm trying to do here.
1: Mm. For me, after working at Villa Appalachia and then working at Morissette and then helping out at Amrine for a little bit, there was a point at Morissette where I just, I got burned out in the sense of, and it's no ding on the company, it's just a different business model. It became very formulaic, where it became this sort of paint-by-numbers operation, for me, from a production standpoint, where like, grapes showed up, this is how we processed them, we opened up bags and bags of stuff and dumped it in, and it was like, it just, it pained some of us in production, because we were just like, We had these grapes and we basically just cut it off at its knees. We have no idea what it could become. But for them it was just like, none of that mattered. It was just like they're making a product and it was consistent for their business model and this is what it is. And for me, wine can take on an ethereal level. The great wines of the world. And the great Eduardo Valentini, who was a Montalcione di Abruzzo producer, famous saying that I took to heart a long time ago is, Nature doesn't leap.
0: Wait, nature doesn't leap?
1: For me, my interpretation was, say, enzymes in particular. Enzymes are a very popular thing to add to grapes. Enzyme speeds up the natural reactions, Mm. so you get to that end result. Yeah, you can do these things to speed up the process, or you just give it time.
0: Mm.
1: So nature doesn't leap. You can't mimic that. And for me, you got to keep things very simple in the cellar. And trust me, there's all kinds of stuff you can add to wine, you can build up, a, you can break down a wine and build it back up. And all of a sudden I was tasting these wines that I made years later, and they totally bored me. I knew what we did to this, and it's what, I'm not tasting the vintage, I'm not tasting the site specifics, I'm just tasting this formula and the passion was starting to fade and that freaked me out mm-hmm. I was like no there's some there's something more to it and just started reading more and then and spent a ridiculous amount of money on wine <laughs> cuz I wanted to learn and all of a sudden I started tasting these wines from around the world and get my paycheck and I'd head up to the vintage cellar in Blacksburg, Virginia and no one in on their right mind would spend that part of their paycheck on that wine to share and learn from. And it was like, all right, in a couple of weeks, I gotta worry, how am I gonna pay rent <laughs> kind of thing. But yeah. that was, it was just, it was an opportunity. I was just like, I gotta do this. I gotta pursue it. And it just, it opened up a whole new world for me. I started connecting the dots with palette training. Okay, I know what I did to this wine and I taste the added acid. I taste the added tannin. I taste all these different components, but they were disjointed. There was not harmony or seamlessness. And then I taste a French wine or Italian wine. It was all this harmony. And it's like, wait a second. Are they doing the same thing we're doing? Why isn't their wines taste the same? And that's when I just had this aha moment and started reading about certain producers. And it's like, well, we don't do this. We don't do that and we focus on the vineyards. In the five years I was at Morissette, I never touched a vine. We were indoor plumbers, and I learned the nuts and bolts, but it was like that that human connection. It's like, why are those wines taste so much different? So yeah, yeah there was an intellectual curiosity, and so I just pursued that and went down the rabbit hole. <laughs> I went to college for the wrong reasons. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I mean, I'm the only one of my family who doesn't have a college degree. I just I didn't know what I wanted to do but I enjoyed reading I enjoyed science very much me and my father he was the science teacher at the high school I had no choice <laughs> science was basically forced on me same <laughs> I just I like to work I like to do I can't sit still I was never good in school I had lots of interests
0: I've loved internships because I feel like you get hands-on learning yes so actually one of my first internships was at a radio station Oh! Did you know that? I did not know that. I remember, I celebrated my 16th birthday when I was interning at the radio wow. station, and we did a whole little episode about it, and it was really cute, but it was really cool for someone who had so many ideas and so many passions. It was really nice to be in a group of people who took me under their wing. I was like a, a guest on their radio show every once in a while, they are like, come on intern Jen! And I got to come up with trivia questions. Nice. I got in trouble for making them too hard. Oh,
1: I can see that. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's another thing is, as you said, you have all these interests. And that was another thing for me. I had all these interests. And it was hard. It was like, you want me to pick one and go to college? I don't know.
0: College is so expensive that... Oh,
1: it's ridiculously expensive.
0: And I've talked to so many people that are like, if I could go back to college now, I would do it so differently. Mm. And I think that's also true for me. I'm so pro internships in that way. in a lot of other countries, apprenticeships or internships, on the job learning is prioritized more.
1: Oh, it most certainly needs to be right. the shift in this country to change things because it's this whole desire. In high school, you graduate high school you, and you're 18. Right. And it's like, now you're being asked to make a decision for the next four years of your life right. and to take on an absurd amount of debt. And it's like, what are we doing? We need to be pushing trade schools more and right. more. Like just getting out there and meeting people and to do these hands-on internships, apprenticeship programs, you meet these different people and you make these connections and all of a sudden like these light bulbs go off and it's maybe I should pursue this, pursue that.
0: I asked Carl at the end of last episode, who should I interview? And he said, a park ranger. A park (laughs) ranger. Thanks thanks, Carl. (laughs) I don't personally know any park rangers yet. (laughs) But the, the fact that
1: you jumped to me, it,
0: wow. Because <laughs> he was like, what do park rangers do? Like, I don't know, take care of nature or something? I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Jonathan's basically a park ranger. <laughs> <Kind of. laughs> anyway, so I'll throw that same question back at you. But who should I interview next? Wow. What job do you want to learn about?
1: Hmm. A farmer John at the Given Tree. Uh-huh. John DeVore to get his take on... His day-to-day because that man he's a very good friend and we hang out often but there's times of the year where we don't see each other because we're both farmers and we're extremely yeah. busy but we always try to make time to hang out but you no know, the day in the life of john duvall well worth it Jen.
0: <laughs> cool awesome <laughs> you chose a friend that you actually know to make this a practical exercise that's all i had okay well, well <laughs> thank you so much for coming on what's a real job yeah. anyway
1: my pleasure i'm very impressed
0: Thank you so much.
1: (laughs) Tell Carl that Park Ranger Jonathan says hello.